This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. A brilliant spring day, clear blue sky, and looking up through the tops of the spruce trees and through the mazy lacework of unfolding leaves on the alder trees, I can see the high vertiginous slopes of the surrounding mountains, still covered in deep winter snow, but melting all the trickles and streamlets and rills running down off the snowfields into the streams like the one I'm sitting beside right now. This glittering clear water stream is one of thousands that rush through the steep walled valleys of Alaska, surrounded by the peaks of the Brooks Range, the Nulato Hills, the Kuskokwim Mountains, the Alaska Range, the Chugach Mountains, the Aleutian Range, and the coastal mountains from Yakutat all the way down to Hyder. Every one of these streams makes its own music. And if you listen closely along a stream like this one, there's a good chance you'll hear another song. This is one of the North Country's most beautiful voices. You can hear it almost everywhere in Alaska, woven through the chorus of swift water like the one that's in front of me right now, tumbling down through a bouldery, rocky stream bed, clear, clear water, just above that water, now fluttering down off a little perch is the bird making that song. It's called the dipper or the water oozel. Let's listen again. It's not only a lovely song, but it's remarkable because the dipper sings almost all year round, even in the middle of the winter. It's one of our most fascinating and endearing birds. This one is now just across the stream it flew down off the top of a mossy log where it was perched, and it just splashed right down into the water, and it's now walking just along the rocks at the water's edge. I've eased out now to the opposite side of this fairly narrow stream. It's only about 30 feet wide where I am now, but the dipper is just upstream, perhaps 50 feet from where I'm standing, and working its way along the edge of the water. An amazing bird, and nobody felt this more than the great American nature writer and conservationist John Muir. In his book, The Mountains of California, John Muir described the dipper this way. He is a singularly joyous and lovable little fellow, about the size of a robin, clad in a plain waterproof suit of bluish gray with a tinge of chocolate on the head and shoulders. In form, he's about as smoothly plump and compact as a pebble that has been whirled in a pothole, the flowing contour of his body being interrupted only by his strong feet and bill, the crisp wingtips, the upslanted wren-like tail. I can see that wren-like tail now as my dipper is standing right at the edge of the water with its feet in the water, 
and a little perky tail pointed up toward the mossy banks of this stream. Now just walking, kind of twitching its way along the edge, quite swift water where that dipper is working. It's slate gray, about robin size, but a robin that has been eating really well. Both sexes look identical. It blends almost perfectly with the streamside rocks and boulders. So I have to look really closely to keep from losing track of where it stands. The dipper got its name from its habit of dipping or bobbing up and down. Up to one dip per second and fastest when it's nervous. My dipper is not very nervous right now. It's only dipping once every few seconds, but it dips its whole body. Now it's walking down right into the water. If you didn't know that dipper was here, there's no way you'd ever see it. John Muir called it by an older name, Water Oozel. What in the world is the source of that extraordinary name? Apparently, this bird reminded the early American settlers of the European blackbird, which used to be called Oozel. That's a name that can be traced all the way back to Old English. There's only one species of dipper in North America. It lives in the western mountains from Alaska, south all the way to Panama, and east to the Black Hills of South Dakota. There are several other species of dippers in South America, in Europe, and in Asia. It's found everywhere in Alaska. That's another one of the amazing things about this bird. From the Arctic slope, throughout the interior, along all the Alaskan coasts, even out the Aleutian chain, this little bird can be found. The dipper belongs to the songbird family, but it's completely different from any other songbird because dippers live entirely in and around water. Here's John Muir. No canyon is too cold for this little bird, none too lonely, provided it be rich in falling water. Find a fall or cascade or rushing rapid anywhere upon a clear stream and there you will surely find its complimentary oozel, flipping about in the spray, diving in foaming eddies, whirling like a leaf among beaten foam bells, ever vigorous and enthusiastic, yet self-contained, neither seeking nor shunning your company. He is the mountain stream's own darling, the hummingbird of blooming waters, loving rocky ripple slopes and sheets of foam as a bee loves flowers, as a lark loves sunshine and meadows. And this little dipper in this Alaskan stream is doing everything John Muir said it ought to be doing. Loving its water world. Loving it with its entire body, and as far as I can tell, with its entire being. A bird that was absolutely made for the water. Now here are some interesting things about the dipper. It has no webbing between its toes, despite its aquatic way of life. They use their legs to paddle around and their feet paddling around in little still pools. This dipper right now is close to a still pool but not drawn to it at all. It's drawn to the fast moving water that it's right inside of at this moment. It has a remarkable ability to walk on the bottom of streams, even in powerful rapids, grasping the stones with its long toes and its sharp claws. That's exactly what this dipper is doing. It's walking down into the water, constantly dipping, but as it does this, 
It's like it's curtsying right down into this swift water stream, standing on a little rock right now, surrounded by rushing water. Now it walks right down into the water, dips its head down underwater, and sort of sculls its way through the stream, disappears underneath the water. They keep their head down when they're moving into the current, as this dipper is doing right now, hopping from rock to rock, down underwater, up again. Keep their head down so the current presses the bird down against the bottom. This helps them to keep from being swept away. Also, they use their stubby wings to dive and maneuver underwater. They can go in deep water pools as deep as 15 to 20 feet. Now the dipper is in a little spot of sunshine, so its smooth gray feathers really show up, and I can see the water washing up around its body. Dippers have flaps on their nostrils to keep the water out when they're submerged. They have a special membrane that closes over their eyes. It's like a transparent eyelid, and they can probably see just as well underwater as they can see above water. If you saw this bird, you would never guess. You would think it's just another bird that lives on land and wouldn't think of going in the water, and yet here it is right at this moment with the water rushing literally over its body. The dipper's blood carries high amounts of oxygen, like lots of other diving animals. This allows it to stay underwater longer. Many, many mammals that dive have that same characteristic. It has a very tight cloak of feathers and very thick down to keep dry and warm in icy streams. In that regard, it's very much like ducks and other waterfowl that live in cold northern waters. And the dipper has a very large oil gland at the base of its tail flying right past me and downstream. I gotta chase after it now. They rub their beak and their face in that gland at the base of their tail and they use it to oil and waterproof their feathers. So they're very, very well adapted to an aquatic lifestyle even though they don't look like it. Now my dipper is perched on a mossy log about one foot above a very still pool and it's dipping and it's singing. What a gorgeous voice. It's impossible to overstate the dipper's commitment to its home stream. Here's John Muir again. The ouzel, born on the brink of a stream or on a snag or boulder in the midst of it, seldom leaves it for a single moment. For notwithstanding he is often on the wing, he never flies over land, but whirs with rapid quail-like beat above the stream, tracing all its windings. Even when the stream is quite small, say five to ten feet wide, he seldom shortens his flight by crossing a bend, however abrupt it may be. The vertical curves and angles of the most precipitous torrents he traces with the same rigid fidelity, swooping down the inclines of cascades, dropping sheer over dizzy falls amid the spray and ascending with the same fearlessness and ease. No matter though it be several hundred feet in height, he holds straight on as if about to dash headlong into the throng of booming rockets, then darts abruptly upward, and after alighting at the top of the precipice to rest a moment, he proceeds to sing and feed. As my bird is doing again now, singing from its little perch. At night, the dipper stays very close to that stream, just roosts under a cut bank, on a branch, or on tree roots next to the water. Never ever goes far from the water. Amazingly, 
dippers don't even leave their home stream in the coldest part of winter. They never migrate. If the main part of the river freezes, they move to the closest open water. For example, in coastal areas, they'll move down nearer the coast where it's a bit warmer and the water stays open. In the interior and up in the Arctic, they move to places where strong currents or springs keep the water open. Imagine this, in and out of the water, when it's 50, 60, 70 degrees below zero. I remember so vividly when I lived with Koyukon people, Indian people up in the interior of Alaska along the Cuyahoga River. They talked to me about this bird they called a little duck and it lives all winter long in hot springs in the Purcell Mountains between the Kobuk and the Cuyahoga River drainages. Told me about this bird, it seems so mysterious. They say it's up there. Wherever there's open water, you see this little bird, its name in the Koyukon language, Tanilot, and it means my grandmother sank. The more they told me about this bird, the more I realized they're talking about the dipper. My grandmother sank because of its habit of fluttering around the water and then diving into it and swimming around. The dipper is now, oh, so beautiful on this little sun-washed, mossy, rounded rock right at the edge of the water just very peacefully walking down and literally floating on the water right now like a little duck and hopping back up onto the rock. The dipper's chosen stream like this one has got to have enough food to keep the bird going all year round. They mostly eat the larvae of aquatic insects called stoneflies, mayflies, and caddisflies. These larvae are attached to the rocks or they're down underneath the rocks in the beds of swift streams. They're right in the rapids, they're in the eddies, they're in the deep still pools like the one that this dipper is working at right now. Now when the larvae of these mayflies and stoneflies and caddisflies hatch, they become winged insects flying around in the areas of these streams. When there's a big insect hatch, the dipper will also fly out over the water and snatch these freshly hatched insects from midair. There's another bird voice. That is a ruby-crowned kinglet. That's another bird that's found all over Alaska. Little teeny thing lives up to its name. It's got a little red spot on the top of its head. And you often hear those singing way up in the treetops, any place where there's forest in Alaska. Its Koyukon name is Takuzoya because its song goes like this. Chi, 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 tauzi, tauzi, tauzi. You hear it? Listen. That's the ruby crown kinglet. Our dipper is now doing the classic dipper behavior, sitting right at the edge of the stream and twitching down into the water, facing right up into the current in a very rapid part of the stream, water just rushing down over a little, almost a falls, and the dipper just comfortably and fearlessly immersing itself right down into this fast water. Here's how John Muir describes a dipper hunting for insects in fast water like this one is doing right now. He wades upstream and often while his head is underwater, the swift current is deflected upward along the glossy curves of his neck and shoulders in the form of a clear crystalline shell, which fairly encloses him like a bell glass, the shell being broken and reformed as he lifts and dips his head. That's what is happening right in front of us at this very moment, exactly as Muir described it 
well over 100 years ago. And here it is happening right now along this stream in Alaska. The dipper all bathed in sunshine and bathed in clear, icy water. Dippers are completely dependent on pure, pristine water like that that you find in most Alaskan streams. They find their prey by sight. So if the water gets murky, if there's sediment washing out from mines or clear cuts or other kinds of developments, the dippers simply vanish. Also, if pollutants get into a stream and kill off the aquatic insects and larvae, the dippers are gone because there's nothing for them to eat anymore. They're similar to salmon because both of these animals depend on very high water quality. Now I'm hearing just back here, away from the stream a little bit, another bird that's kind of a sibling, I think, to the dipper, even though they're not closely related. I'm gonna walk back here, just stepping back into very, very deep woods and looking at a tall, kind of a gnarly mass of roots and broken, half-rotted stump, and perched right on the top of that is this little bird. Give it a listen. This is a bird called the winter wren. It may have been called this because its song heralds the end of the winter. In fact, they often sing when there's snow falling, when there's snow all over the ground. You listen to that elaborate, convoluted song, and doesn't it remind you of the song of our dipper? It's just a bit more urgent and energetic. <laughs> Give it another listen here. The maker of this very big song is the smallest Alaskan bird other than hummingbirds. It's just over three inches long. Tiny little thing, brown colored, thin bill, and like the dipper, a short, perky tail. This is the smallest of the nine species of wrens that are found in North America. There are about 60 species of wrens altogether, every one of them only found in North or South America except for one. And that one is the winter wren. In places like England and Ireland, it's simply called the wren. One thing that is showing us right now, it's fluttered down, buzzed down, and it's down right around in the roots of this big tree. And as it flits round back and forth, it looks for all the world like a little brown mouse. It seems tiny and vulnerable, but this is an amazingly successful species. This might be the only songbird that has evolved here in the New World in North and South America and made its way successfully to colonize the Old World, Europe and Asia. There are lots of North American birds that come from Eurasian families, like for example the thrushes, but only this one has made its way in the other direction. The winter wren lives all around the western United States, clear across Canada, and down in the eastern and southeastern United States. It's absent only from the plains and deserts. So again, you can see what a successful bird this is. In Alaska, it stays in the warmer areas along the coast from southeast Alaska up to Cook Inlet, out the Aleutian chain, north to the Pribilof Islands in the Bering Sea. So it has a huge range in the state, but it likes to stay where it's not so cold. It adapts to all sorts of habitats, deep shady old growth forest, the forest edge, the shrubby thickets. It likes to hang around the driftwood piles along the ocean shore. And it does pretty darn well 
in backyards in towns. You might have a winter wren living in your own backyard. They like to stay close to the ground. You don't see winter wrens way up there in the treetops. They glean insects and spiders and all the nooks and crannies of the foliage around the tree trunks and the knotted root masses like the one that our wren is flitting around right now. In cold weather, this is a fascinating thing about winter wrens, when it really gets cold, they all get together, they snuggle in little nooks and crannies together. There's one record of 46 winter wrens piled three layers deep in a nest box getting away from cold weather. The winter wren is an absolute bundle of electric energy. As you can tell by listening to this song, the males make darn good use of this energy during the mating season. They build several rough nests in cavities, for example, a hole in a tree or down around the knotted masses of roots. And they attract a female by singing. They try to get a female interested in their little nest areas. They sometimes actually manage to have several mates at a time. I told you they were energetic. Each female picks one of those nests she then lines it with feathers and grass, you know, making it into a nice living space instead of a rough-hewn male kind of a hovel. And then she lays the eggs and the male helps her to feed the young. When he has several mates, he keeps very busy helping to provide food for those little ones. And from the time those eggs are laid until the young ones are fledged, takes just a little bit over a month. Another great thing about winter wrens, the fact that they stay around here throughout the year. Unlike the dipper, they don't sing through the cold months, but you can hear their sharp little glinting chatters all over the place. It always makes me feel good to see this little critter flitting around in the woods or the backyard, especially during the winter, because every time I see one, I think, well, it must be getting close to spring. I can delude myself if it happens to be that I'm seeing that wren in December or January. I'm making my way back over to our stream, and there's the dipper again still bobbing around on the rocks next to the water. Down into the stream it goes. The male dipper sings to defend a territory just like the male of the winter wren does. He's signaling other males to stay away. He claims about a half to one mile of stream and he will sometimes even attack other male dippers if they get into his territory. He also sings, of course, to attract a mate and sings intensely when he's courting. And who could not fall into a swoon when you hear this glorious voice over the stream. Other than that, dippers tend to be solitary. Only when they have a mate and when they're helping to raise the young do they hang out with others of their kind. The female does most of the nest building. You gotta hear what John Muir has to say about the nest of this bird. He writes, the ouzel's nest is one of the most extraordinary pieces of bird architecture I ever saw odd and novel in design, perfectly fresh and beautiful, and in every way worthy of the genius of the little builder. It is about a foot in diameter, round and bossy in outline, with a neatly arched opening near the bottom. A dipper's nest, I found one just yesterday along the stream here. It looks like an upside down teacup, but it's about the size of a football or a soccer ball with the opening faced always toward the water. It's made out of grass, leaves, and other kinds of plant material, usually covered with green moss that's kept alive by the spray and the splash from the stream. The one I found yesterday was just like that, beautiful bright green moss all over it. It looked like a mossy stone that was tucked along the edge of the stream in a little cleft among the rocks. They're also built among the roots of a tree, sometimes very hard things to see. 
Dippers are even said to nest underneath waterfalls and to get in and out of their nest fly right smack through the waterfall. Nowadays, dippers also will often nest on a beam underneath a bridge. Good nest sites can be used for many generations by the dippers. Often they're right next to the water, but high enough so the high flows, the floodwaters, don't wash them away, so they last for a long time. Here's John Muir's flowery description of a nest in its location beside a river. At certain hours of the day, when the sunshine is poured down at the required angle, the whole mass of the spray enveloping the fairy establishment is brilliantly irised. And it is through so glorious a rainbow atmosphere as this that some of our blessed oozles obtain their first peep at the world. They lay four or five eggs. The female incubates them. She seldom leaves the nest. The male, his job, of course, is to bring the food and he often perches right next to the nest and sings and sings and sings. After a couple of weeks, the young dippers emerge, and when they emerge, they're already wearing a thick coat of down. They gotta be ready for this chilly, wet world that they're born into. When they leave the nest, the little oozles will often crash land right into the stream, but they somehow survive it, even if they get washed down with the strong current or rushed down until they can cling to a rock and crawl out. The parents have to go looking for them when that happens. And almost immediately, they start ducking their head under the water, learning to find food. It's just completely instinctive to them. The parents will keep on feeding these little offsprings, but within about a week, they're getting all of their own food. When that happens, the dipper couple might raise a second brood starting immediately afterward. The family stays in the same area until winter and only then do they disperse. Well, there's my dipper out there. Now again, in the very slick, silky water of a pool just above a little rapids. The dipper is now kind of working right along the edge of that smooth water. I'm easing out a little bit closer. A little bit closer, but going easy so I don't scare it away. It's completely oblivious to me right now and slipping down into this beautiful, smooth, rushing water. It's one of those areas where the stream is coming up out of a deep pool, and you know how utterly smooth that water can be. Dipper really beautifully reflected in it, now standing in the sunshine, and now going, spinning around on the water, and down it goes, down completely underwater, using its wings. I can see it under the clear water, using its wings, uh, literally walking on the bottom of this little pond, and now up, bobs up, goes over to the rocks and starts to dip and singing again. Here's John Muir on the Dipper's song. Among all the mountain birds, none has cheered me so much in my lonely wanderings, none so unfailingly, for both in winter and summer he sings, sweetly, cheerily, independent alike of sunshine and of love, requiring no other inspiration than the stream on which he dwells. His music is that of the streams refined and spiritualized. The deep booming notes of the falls are in it, the trills of rapids, the gurgling of margin eddies, the low whispering of level reaches, and the sweet tinkle of separate drops oozing from the ends of mosses and falling into tranquil pools. That's exactly what's going on right at this moment here on this Alaskan stream. It's as if the dipper is the soloist and the stream is the orchestra. I can't think of a better way to appreciate the peace and tranquility of this bright springtime Alaskan day than to sit here listening to the mingled songs 
of a wild stream and a bird that seems made for these laughing, frolicking waters it's chosen as its lifelong home. Here are these little creatures, the dipper and the winter wren back behind us, leading their meticulously crafted, elegantly evolved, impeccably competent lives, fitting beautifully into their places, endlessly fascinating, yielding themselves to anyone patient enough to sit and watch, yet they're always mysterious, always kind of hidden somewhere at the edge of sight. What a pleasure and privilege it is to share this world with them. For encounters in the company of water oozels and winter wrens, I'm Richard Nelson. Thanks so much for your company. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited by Ken Fate, and produced by Lisa Bush. Theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, Sue Cohen, Robert Osborne, the Skaggs Foundation, and the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust. To find out more information about Encounters, visit us on the web at EncountersNorth.org.